0: It was next level.
1: All you saw were bodies.
2: There was humanity that was mixed in with the mechanization. It's pretty cool. It's cooler than we feared it might be. In
3: 1994, with the release of The Downward Spiral, and in the wake of Kurt Cobain's death, Trent Reznor became the face of alternative rock. The year culminated with Nine Inch Nails' legendary, mud-soaked performance at Woodstock 94. I'm Troy L. Smith, you're listening to CLE Rocks, and this is the story behind one of the greatest albums and most iconic performances of the 1990s. The following contains explicit language. The story of Nine Inch Nails begins in Cleveland, Ohio in the late 80s. Trent Reznor, then a member of local synth-pop band Exotic Birds, took a job as a janitor at Right Track Studios. Studio owner Bart Koster allowed Reznor late-night access to Right Track to work on demos that would form Nine Inch Nails' debut album, Pretty Hate Machine. The album would prove a watershed moment in the still-young genre that was industrial rock, with songs like Down In It and Head Like a Hole proving to be groundbreaking compositions in the alternative rock scene. Pretty Hate Machine would go on to become one of the first independently released albums to go platinum, but things were far from ideal for Resner. A feud with his record label over control of Nine Inch Nails' direction pushed the young musician to his breaking point. Jason Pettigrew, editor-in-chief for Alternative Press Magazine, spent two days in Los Angeles with Resner at the time, seeing the Nine Inch Nails frontman's frustration take center stage.
2: He was fighting with TVT Records so hardly and so fierce, just so hard, so fierce, that he decided that... I'm not going to make another record for this guy, and if that's the end of my career, oh, well. That was the level of, you know, hatred he had. So what had happened was he kept going on tour to support this record, Pretty Hate Machine, and the more he got on tour, the more angrier and madder he got, and he would take it out on the audience. In terms of things like throwing things at the audience, like there was one episode where some roadie, Or maybe it was an opening band or something. I don't know. They had their lunch. They had cold, congealed pizza off the side of the stage. I mean, like it was still in plain view from the stage. Like, why is this? So you should kind of be insulted if you're in a band and like, oh, here's somebody's meal that's on stage with us. And uh, Trent just said, "Ah, fuck it, grabbed it, and um, started flinging it in the faces of all these these people who (laughs) paid to see him at the gig. It was stuff like that. The ironic part of that is the more extreme that it got, where it seemed like it was hatred, uh, complete, complete loathing for the audience, it actually sold him more merchandise. The more that the band abused the audience, whether it was extremely loud noise or using so much smoke he couldn't see anything on stage or anything, just anything, the more abuse they put on the audience, the more love they got.
3: Nine Inch Nails' growing popularity, which included a performance at Lollapalooza 91, would gain the attention of Interscope Records executive Jimmy Iveen. He would sign Nine Inch Nails to a record deal, allowing Reznor to create his own label, Nothing Records. In 1992, Nine Inch Nails would set up shop in Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles, at the home of the infamous Tate Murders. Reznor would rename the home Le Pig, where Nine Inch Nails would record its broken EP. Le Pig Studios would also serve as the main recording location for Nine Inch Nails' sophomore album, The Downward Spiral. Influenced by David Bowie's *Low* and Pink Floyd's The Wall, The Downward Spiral would prove innovative and revolutionary on a sonic level. Adam Steiner, author of Into the Never, Nine Inch Nails, and the creation of The Downward Spiral, describes Reznor's unwavering willingness to push himself and his
4: band to new heights. You know, he'd been touring for a couple of years and stuff, and he kind of wanted to go in a heavier more guitar focused direction and i think he was really sort of trying to push the sonic envelope and just see the limits of his own abilities with guitar born out of you know loads of touring and playing live and all that aggression and excitement and passion and then what he could do with that technology-wise so like taking the guitar and like adapting it and editing it and yeah basically pushing it to make the guitar sound as heavy and intense as he could And so in pushing himself he was kind of pushing the audience as well and really testing them to see if they would stick with him i guess you could kind of say like um pretty hate machine broken sort of um two sides of the you know the nine inch nail sound pretty hate machine a bit lighter a bit more like synth pop almost kind of dancey and then you've got like broken which is just this really crazy kind of metal mini album that just came out of nowhere So I think The Downward Spiral sort of combined those two elements but also showed like a real maturing of sound where Trent felt freer and more experienced to do basically more experimental work. The subject matter of The Downward Spiral would prove
3: controversial. The album depicts the mental and emotional decay of its protagonist as he inches closer and closer to suicide. I
0: hurt myself
3: See
2: if I
3: still feel Themes of drug use, sex, and self harm would also take shape, but as Alternative Press editor Pettigrew tells it, it was that human quality that separated Nine Inch Nails from its peers.
2: A lot of the industrial rock stuff, at least your your, your pillars, basically yeah, ministry, Skinny poppy, a lot of those things were very, a lot of those bands were very political and not political, but um, they didn't really write in the first person. There was really, it was all basically commentary, doom, bloom, entropy, atrophy of, you know, humanity as we know it. It was Resner who actually put the first person on things and like this is the shit that I'm going through, and because he put a human veneer on it, he was able to catch a lot more a lot more fans with it because it was all about it was all about him and they could relate to the things that were going on in
3: his life and everything that he was uh, feeling at the time. The downward spiral would become a massive success, debuting at number two on the Billboard 200 chart in March 1994. The video for the single Closer, driven by religious and sexual imagery, sun. Disturbing would become a mainstay on MTV.
4: Nine
3: Inch Nails' place at the forefront of the alternative rock scene that was taking over the 1990s was cemented, says Steiner.
4: You know, after um, Kurt Cobain committed suicide, Reznor, I, th- I think, helped to lead the way in that alternative rock. Movement that was just getting going in the early 90s and kind of dominated all the way through the decade, you know, all the way up to 2000 and onwards a little bit more, you know, and you had a lot of bands following in his wake. But he made something that was like very kind of rocky and heavy in places, but also very electronic y. So it was something really unique to everything else that was out there, along with, you know, what became termed Generation X of a whole load of young people who were disaffected, disenfranchised, you know, felt politically disengaged from the mainstream system of society. It was something to latch onto, and it, it gave a voice, I think, to yeah, to their struggle and their 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 discontent. To support the release of The Downward Spiral,
3: Nine Inch Nails would embark on the Self-Destruct Tour in March. That August, some of the biggest acts in music were set to converge on Socrates New York, for Woodstock 94, a massive festival celebrating the 25th anniversary of the iconic 1969 Woodstock Festival. The three-day festival would feature everyone from classic rock icons like Bob Dylan and Aerosmith to huge contemporary acts like the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Metallica. It would also air live on pay-per-view. Mike Norman, then the music critic for the Plain Dealer newspaper in Cleveland, remembers preparing to cover the festival. Even when you looked at
0: the lineup, you knew it was going to be, you know, it was going to be epic. You had you know you had Bob Dylan there. You had um, Crosby, Stills, Nash. You had uh, Nine Inch Nails. You had bands like the Cranberries, even Salt and Peppa. They had Metallica. You had Aerosmith,
3: Blind Melon when it was coming up, Joe Cocker. I mean, it was a huge big deal. While on tour, Nine Inch Nails received an offer to play Woodstock '94. But as the band's then tour manager Marco Shea remembers, it wasn't a sure thing that Nine Inch Nails would participate. It came
1: into fruition that we were going to be a part of this. Woodstock 94. And you got to imagine the thought with this industrial band that had been doing really well and these young guys just having a great blast. We were like literally just kicking back up doing some shows, John Maul, you know, calls us and says, hey, there's an opportunity for us to play this Woodstock thing. And we were just kind of like being in a position where we were, we were kind of like the thought was like, oh, cool. Having no idea of how big that event was going to be. And Trent, up to that point, other than doing Lollapalooza, you know, he had really never gone and done one of these one-off things. So there was the kind of idea of kind of going, how's this going to work with our, our set How's that going to work with the lighting we had been used to? I know to the best of my memory, there was some apprehension in Trent's head, and he was always about, not even 100, 1,000% of giving the audience the best entertainment value that he could ever get.
3: Reznor would later reveal that one of the reasons he accepted the offer was financial. The money the band earned from Woodstock 94 would supplement the rest of a very expensive self-destruct tour. My
2: incentive for coming here was two main reasons. One was to, I thought it would be a fun show to play. And secondly, they offered us a lot of money to play. And with the money we made from tonight's show, we can fund a tour that we would have lost unbelievable amount of money to do, we took a lot of production out. and I weighed that out. We'll just go out and try to do the best show
3: we can. As Oshea recalls, Reznor also realized the opportunity such a large festival presents. Final estimates for the entire weekend at Woodstock 94 put attendance above the half million mark, with crowds for some bands reaching more than 300,000. And no act drew a bigger audience than Nine Inch Nails, who went on Saturday night, August 13th, in between Crosby, Stills and & Nash and Metallica. Oshea says the scene was intimidating.
1: We're all over there on stage right and kind of look, peeking out behind the side and looking out there, and all you saw were bodies, a massive field of bodies, and that was pretty awe-inspiring. You know, it's, it's one thing to look out at a GA floor at the Quicken Loans Arena or the CSU Convocation Center and see 5,000 people or 3,500 people. But when you look out, as far as you can see, for lack of a better description, is this giant field of people Covered in mud in a giant mixed position out there, which also allows you to gauge the magnitude of that audience. It was three. there was three hundred thousand people there. We're like, holy shit!
3: Rainfall turned the farm in Socrates into a mud field. Norman describes the mud-soaked crowds like one massive wave swaying together. I mean, it was crazy. That's three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand people. It's,
0: it rained after the first night. It turned it into a quagmire, which was both good in terms of the sort of magical quality of it, mystical quality of it, but also horrible because of the just reality of it. And uh, I walked out onto that field and it was, you could move just with the crowd. You couldn't move an inch
3: to the back or an inch to the side. You just had to go with the crowd. It was Crazy. Perhaps the most memorable aspect of Nine Inch Nails' performance was the fact the band was also covered in mud. The story has been told over the years that the band members, Reznor, bassist Danny Lohner, drummer Chris Vrenna, guitarist Robin Fink, and keyboardist James Woolley engaged in a spontaneous mud fight just prior to their set. However, their tour manager O'Shea reveals the entire mud concept was actually premeditated by Reznor.
1: We're having this discussion in our dressing room, as as we always did as a group, of what could we do differently
3: that nobody else is going to do?
1: And then that's when the idea was hatched for the band to become one with the mud people. So you literally had to get in a van and drive to the stage and park as close as you could to the stage. And when you got out of the van, there was a discussion made between Trent, I think myself, and Jerry Meltzer, the band security guy, that Trent was going to tackle one or two of the band members and throw them in the mud. So not everybody was in on it. So the tackling in the mud took place and everybody was literally covered in mud so that when that show started, it was really dark and Trent was literally crawling out between the drum riser and the keyboard riser like a snake on his hands and knees, slithering. And when he stood up and those lights hit and the 150,000 people right up front that were actually literally covered in head-to-toe in dirt, mud, and had been for however long because of the rain, I'm telling you, dude, they went absolutely bonkers. And you could feel the energy from their voices coming back on stage. And it was like he gave you
3: chills. Nine Inch Nails said it. Woodstock 94 begins with a voice familiar to fans of late night TV at the time. Larry Bud Melman, the character on The Late Show with David Letterman, would introduce the band.
1: So Larry Bud Melman came into our dressing room and he wanted to meet the band. So Trent said, would you be into
2: introducing us? And he said,
1: of course I would. So there was this phrase um, that um, was kind of a running joke from the European tour. Because of the fact that no one was really that fluent in a foreign language, you know, the idea was is that we, we can't understand the net, the home language. So uh, one particular day on the bus, I think it was Jonathan Rock, said, you know, it's almost as if you could sit there and say to somebody, punch your balls off, and they would nod their heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was this phrase going around where you'd say it real fast or you'd say it slow, like, punch your balls off. and Oh, yeah, what? So if you listen to Larry Bud Melman, he goes, um, Ladies and gentlemen,
0: punch your balls off and please welcome Nine Inch hail
1: That's where that phrase came from. We gave him that phrase.
3: A malfunction in the festival's rotating stage would lead to a 30-minute delay, and the members of Nine Inch Tales left off stage freezing. Once the show started, the band's ominous intro comes in and fog fills the stage. Resner and his bandmates emerge as mere shadows out of the fog and rip into set opener, terrible lie.
4: This to me. Am I not living up to what I'm supposed to be?
3: Music critic Mike Norman remembers being in awe. It,
0: they were a very muscular act on stage. I mean, they were they were an industrial rock act, but they had a lot of the theatricality of his heroes, like Bowie and Alice Cooper, and he even liked Kiss um, a lot. Now, they didn't have, you know, painted faces and all that, but there was a very uh, intricate th- theatricality to their show, and a lot of... Um, a lot of video intertwined in it uh, with a lot of disturbing Im- imagery so that was that was a big part of it it was like a it was like a production you know it it was great in the sense of arena rock at that level being something
3: that was creative the iconic performance would also feature closer wish a cover of joy division's dead souls and one two closing punch of happiness and slavery and head like a hole The performance would almost immediately become iconic. Glowing reviews poured in. Retrospectives have been written and told in the 26 years that have followed. O'Shea reveals the entire event was an extension of Reznor's performance philosophy.
1: It was always, let's give, let's put our best foot forward. And that was the thing I always admired about his vision and his thought, is that I'm always going to put my best foot forward. And quite frankly, I don't care what it's going to take. Because at the end of the day, I don't want it to be shitty or lame. I don't want it to appear as if I phoned it in. You could go back in time. They were, in my humble opinion, as far as bands I worked with, the only band that every night, and Trent in particular, that tried to leave it on stage.
3: Perhaps the only detractor of Nine Inch Nails' performance was Reznor himself, who admitted immediately after the show he didn't feel the band played well.
2: We didn't play that well. We were terrible, actually. You know, there's a lot of broken things and... Because of our mud
3: baths, uh, things just tend to go wrong. The guitar neck was totally covered with mud. Regardless, Woodstock 94 would further Reznor and Nine Inch Nails' superstar status. The remainder of that year's Self-Destruct Tour would sell out. The tour would continue for a stretch of two more years. However, it wasn't the best of times for Reznor. With their front man struggling with depression and drug and alcohol abuse, Nine Inch Nails would release the follow-up to the downward spiral, titled The Fragile, in 1999. The fragility tour would soon follow, yet in July 2000, Reznor would nearly die of a drug overdose after mistaking heroin for cocaine while on tour in London.
4: Yeah, I think he, you know, I think, yeah, he basically realized that he was really, really struggling with addiction, um, alcohol, drugs, but also just exhaustion and fatigue and You know, pushing himself so hard to make the best records he could. And then, you know, wanting to live up to um, the legend and and be there for your fans um, who, you know, who really admire and believe in what you do. So I think he kind of that's where he really crashed um, and burned, so to speak. Reznor would get
3: sober in 2001, eventually releasing Nine Inch Nails' next album with Teeth in 2005. Reznor spent the last 15 years Releasing albums Both with Nine Inch Nails And Supergroup How to Destroy Angels While teaming with Atticus Ross For a variety of movie soundtracks Including the Academy Award Winning score For David Fincher's 2010 film The Social Network Reznor's success in film Hasn't surprised Alternative Press's Pettigrew in the least
2: He's always like Okay what's the next thing Who's the thing That you know That type of thing But it's not in a mercenary way It's like What's creative And what's interesting And fascinating to me Because people can look to him And say like He's basically He has an audience of, I I don't know what the audience is, I would say there are at least 150,000 people who genuinely care about what he's doing at at any given moment. And because if you were going to tell the world that he was working with the uh, L.A. Philharmonic and Kathy Lee Gifford, you'd go, well, that's fucking weird. But if Trent's doing it, there's got to be some sort of method to the madness. He has that trust in people. He's created that type of artistic trust where he's not going to do anything lame.
3: While Reznor has gone on to amass a success beyond his days as a 90s alt rock superstar, Nine Inch Nails' Woodstock 94 performance remains an important part of his legacy. Nine Inch Nails will be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on November 7, 2020. Appropriately, the band's section in the museum's inductee exhibit consists solely of an art installation that recreates that mud soaked concert in 1994 in all its glory. <laughs>